Since it's New Year's Eve, I would like to talk about the practice and look at it in a way that seems fitting to the end of one year and the beginning of the next. Um, and that is that this whole spiritual journey can be seen as one of healing. You wonder, no doubt, each day, many of us do, what we're doing here in this strange circumstance. And there's talks about awakening and rumors about enlightenment and bad rumors, don't listen to those. <laughs> and uh, they get you in trouble. And uh, descriptions of all kinds of spiritual states and attainments to look for or imagine. Um, there are also frustrations here. Someone said that one of the problems with IMS was that there were a lot of great people, but you weren't allowed to talk to them. <laughs> a lot of interesting books, but you weren't allowed to read them. And many great thoughts, but you weren't allowed to think them. <laughs> So then you wonder, well, what am I doing here? <laughs> There's a level, and a very profound one, at which the whole process of meditation is one of healing. And the Buddha, just like Jesus, was referred to as a great physician, a healer of the spirit, a healer of the suffering of the world, a healer of the heart. I remember going to a temple in, <coughs> in Vietnam. I was a monk at the time of the war <coughs> and went to a, a famous temple of a monk named the Coconut Monk, because that's all he ate. It was on a little island in the Mekong Delta. And there was a great deal of destruction all around it. Even the days that I was there, there was fighting in the distance and helicopter gunships and the whole thing. And you went by boat from this la last little town up to his monastery, and the monks were in brown Vietnamese robes with a little patch sewn on them that had a rifle that was broken in half. And their whole spirit was one of nonviolence, that they wouldn't participate in the war. Although at night, different months, that monastery was raided by the north or the south, and the young men taken off and impressed in one army or another. And in the middle of this island, it was only a couple or a few acres, the temple, was a hill. And on top of the hill was a beautiful statue of the Buddha that stood about 50 or 60 feet tall, a standing statue in orange robes. And right next to it, the same height, 50 or 60 feet tall, was a statue of Jesus and they had their arms around each other's shoulder. <laughs> it was just wonderful. And the, the monastery was a place that was really a center for healing of the war in Vietnam, a place of peace. How is meditation practice a process of healing? In a way, it follows 
directly the four foundations of mindfulness, of body and feelings and mind as we've been going through them in our practice. There's a whole opening of the body that takes place as one sits. We slow down, we settle down, as Pablo Neruda says, we don't wave our arms so much. And in the sitting still, and in the silence, and in the resting, <coughs> things begin to open up. Certainly there's discomfort and pain in the beginning, but then there come different kind of energy releases. And there come uh, into consciousness the areas and knots of tension that we carry through our whole life, the places in our jaw or our back or our neck or our belly or wherever that when situations are difficult, we hold and restore that tension. As you sit and we feel and pay attention to the breath and the body, those start to open up. Sometimes they hurt more. It's not that it gets to be more pleasant necessarily, and that's because it starts to come into consciousness, the things that have been below the surface, unaware. And at times, you can experience the deepest kind of body work happening just by sitting motionless. Knots, tension, um, old patterns of contraction, and with it sometimes attendant feelings and emotions. There are kind of karmic knots, sankharas you could call them, with memory and feeling that are stored in the body. And at times as they open, you'll have a release of energy and images and feelings, all of it will come out. There's a, a really deep process of opening that comes just by stopping, just by making the place of rest where we're not so active and not engaged in gaining or getting or doing. Now, if you have a body to start with, you're in trouble, basically. I mean, it's not like it's a picnic. Some parts of it are wonderful and you can have a good time with them, <laughs> you know, in different ways and so forth. But also, by virtue of having one, you have its limitations. If you decide to get born on this earth in some fashion, and so it has pleasure and it has pain. And um, as you pay attention, if you want to open and to heal, what's required is to open to all of the aspects of it, to honor it. There's a kind of purification, if you will, that takes place as one sits. And the knots and the pains and the energy open up. Sometimes it's even kind of fiery. And in deeper practice, there'll be times when all of the energy channels and the the different energy centers start to light up and you can feel like you're sitting on either on ice sometimes or sitting on a hot stove at other times, all kinds of physical phenomena. Not for everyone, but for many people. What's important is to recognize that the very sitting still is the beginning of this process of healing, of releasing, of opening. It also happens in the body because as we sit and listen to it, instead of being so busy, we can hear what it needs. What amount of food, what kind of diet, what's the right amount of exercise. The eating meditation is really very powerful. If you, if you work with it, you learn a lot about what feels right, what kind of food, what quantity for the body. <coughs> Nasruddin had got a new donkey one time and it was eating quite a lot, a young donkey. 
and he thought this was really too much for him, so he put it on a diet. And it did okay in the diet, and he said, well, this is good, I'm saving money, maybe I should put it on a little smaller diet. And so he gradually decreased its diet, and it got till it was eating less and less and less, and finally, of course, it died. And he went and he told his friends, he said, it's a shame, if only I'd had it around a little longer, I'd gotten it used to eating so very little, I probably could have gotten it used to eating nothing at all, if it just had given me a little more time. We get out of touch with our bodies, in this culture especially. And it's really important, one part of practice, to, to come back into the body, to have an in-the-body experience, as I said the other night, to be with together the mind and body, and to listen to it, to learn what it has to teach. Now, Stephen Levine, who some of you may know, who's a Vipassana teacher and a friend who's written a lot of books on death and dying and healing and so forth. He's just finishing a new book on healing, working a lot with cancer patients and other things. And at first he was using a meditation that came from the work of Carl and Stephanie Simonton, where you would visualize your cancer and then visualize the white blood cells as kind of knights in armor and have them go into battle and spear the cancer cells or, or, or eat them up or somehow do battle with them and, and conquer your cancer. But after a lot of years of working with people, he said he found that a deeper kind of healing took place using visualization and meditation when instead of fighting with the cancer or the disease, one paid attention with as much love as possible in the way you love it to death rather than, than fight with it. Because very often the places of disease in our body are the places that we've cut off from, that we've closed ourselves to energetically or feeling-wise. And the thing that's most needed is a touching with tenderness, with acceptance, with kindness. Not to attack them, but to, to really to re-own them in some way with our awareness. One of the things you may look at in your own meditation is to get a sense of what part of your own bodies, what parts, what aspects have you lost touch with? What parts are asking for healing or for listening to, for honoring, for living with in a more conscious or a wise way? There's a healing that comes in the opening of the senses. You can feel it as the meditation goes along. There's a kind of a cleansing and you get to where you walk outside and the, the breeze feels fresher than ever and your eyes are a little more open and you see the, the beauty and the starkness of winter landscape. The colors, the textures are more alive. It comes as we get more silent and more open and rested and not so busy inside. You taste food if you do the eating meditation. By the end of the retreat, you can have a meal that's better than the best restaurant in New York, the most fabulous food that could be prepared, where you go and you talk about how great it is and look out the window and kind of enjoy it, but you don't really taste it. And here, you just put a piece of broccoli in your mouth <laughs> and you chew it and you get more flavor and more experience because the mind and the body have come together. 
And there's something very important about that, about living in our senses. It's a, a kind of intimacy that we allow ourselves to have with this, with this very physical reality. The Tibetans talk about the basis for meditation practice being a recognition of the preciousness of our human birth. And that preciousness is really an appreciation of life, of what we are given to learn from. There are some people, says Don Juan, who are very careful about the nature of their acts. Their happiness is to act with the full knowledge that they don't have time. Therefore, their acts have a peculiar power. Acts have power, especially when the person acting knows that those acts are their last battle. There's a strange, consuming happiness in acting with the full knowledge that whatever one is doing may very well be one's last act on earth. To realize the preciousness of life and its tentativeness, that we don't know how long we have to live, and no matter how long it is, it's getting less each day. And to, to take that to heart, to, to smell, to taste, to open, to listen, itself is healing. And as we open to the senses, there's a healing that can take place, not just of our own bodies, but of the earth, of the body of the earth, where at this time there's so much warfare, 43 wars, and so much hunger and starvation in places, and oppression and political prisoners who are people like us that are tortured by other people. Amnesty International says in 50 or 60 countries. And ecological havoc and disease that we have medicine for. And a lot of it happens because we're not paying attention to it. We wave our arms so much, we're so busy, we don't listen to the earth. And all of these actions come out of greed and hatred and prejudice and, and uh, fear and delusion. It comes out of the hearts of human beings, out of our ignorance. Somebody needs to find a different way, and that someone is ourselves. Somebody has to face greed and look at anger and rage and fear and sadness and all of the difficult things and find a way to work with it. And if we wish to heal the earth, one of the most important things we can do is to face our own difficulties and our own healing and our own sorrow and find some new way. This is a letter I got in the mail from Physicians for Social Responsibility that do a lot of nuclear disarmament work. I was in Ethiopia as a physician on a relief team delivering supplies to famine sufferers, and I had a glimmer of what happens to the survivor of a disaster when a whole society collapses, when there are no medicines, no food, no resources. The stillness was terrible. Thousands of human bodies around us. The air was filled only with the eerie rustle of skin and the soft din of moans. 
I looked into dull, unblinking eyes and examined babies who could not live for another day or two. And all my medical training was useless. I could spoon-feed some food into a few mouths, yes, or I could apply antiseptics or start IVs, but the people needed more. They needed an intact society that could provide the necessities of life. I would leave, but that bare existence, bereft of any source of food, water, clothing, shelter, would remain their world. But to think that such a wasteland could face the few humans who would remain on the earth after a nuclear war is just as painful. As a, as a pediatrician in a comfortable suburb, I've seen thousands of children for sore throats, ear infections, the usual range of acute and chronic complaints, and counsel parents about shots and nutrition. But I can't shake the feeling that all my work as a physician might be destroyed. I can't escape feeling that I should be warning people. The danger affects our children. Too many of them also despair. They watch TV and movies and play their laser games and Star Wars games, but they're afraid. Still, I've seen that despair transformed. Last year, I counseled a 12-year-old boy who lives close to Griffiths Air Force Base near Utica. He learned from the newspapers that scores of bombers and nuclear-tipped cruise missiles were stored there on ready for launch. Matthew suffered extreme and debilitating anxiety. He could scarcely sleep, and when he did, nightmares plagued him. He did poorly in school. His appetite was depressed. He was afraid. In the first sessions, we talked about the weapons. I suggested he do something. No, he said, his parents told him nothing could really be done. But one afternoon he was in for a session. Congress happened to be voting on funds for the new MX missile. So I picked up the phone and dialed the congressman's office in Washington and handed the phone to Matthew. Amazing, an eloquent and wonderful plea for disarmament poured unexpectedly from a 12-year-old. The administrative aide who took the call asked him to slow down so he could write it all down word for word. And then he told Matthew, I'll be sure the congressman gets your message before he votes today. Matthew hung up the phone in a state of disbelief. And in the next few weeks, I watched as he changed. His demeanor and posture improved. He began to sleep through the night. His nightmare ceased. It's terrible to think about disease and disaster in Africa, and even more so to think about nuclear war. Most of us wish to push it out of our minds. But we can't afford to turn away, and we cannot afford to despair. Our children matter. Our daily efforts matter. Please join me in paying attention. Please join me in making a difference. Join me in refusing despair and join me in working for peace and social responsibility. So to heal the earth, we have to open our senses to the sky, to the sun, to the mystery of the trees, to the forests, 
to the acid rain and the pollution and the ozone and the beauty of it and what's going on. To listen to it and see what's needed. It's no different than healing our own bodies. The rhythms, the mystery. Just to look at a tree. Trees are amazing. Or animals, a deer, or a dog, or a cat, or an egg. You have eggs for breakfast sometimes. An egg, what an amazing thing. How does that come to a whole being? Nobody knows how, it just happens. When Rodney talked about the Buddha touching the earth with his hand, in the night of enlightenment, the Buddha was striving to be enlightened. And at the moment that he was to be overcome by the forces of difficulty and despair and Mara, all all the kinds of delusion in his own mind, he touched the earth and called upon the earth goddess to arise and give witness to the fact that he had practiced and practiced and practiced for lifetime after lifetime, compassion and patience, and that he had won a right to sit on that spot. And in a way, what he did in touching the earth was to bring the the masculine and the feminine in balance, to bring the energy of his resolve together with the goddess of the earth, to bring the energy of the mind and the energy of the heart together. So there's a healing of the body and a healing through the senses, a healing of the earth, and a healing of the heart and the feelings. When we stop being so busy, stop moving and running around, we can begin to feel our hearts much more. And we feel beautiful things and joyful things and very difficult things, the kind of things of our loneliness or our despair or our fear or boredom or things that we generally run away from. In Buddhism, this is called the ocean of tears. And it's very hard to face. How much grief do we all have ourselves in our lives? Or how many wounds or how much sorrow It's part of being alive as a person. And it's very hard to to touch it, to face it. It's hard to weep for ourselves. Maybe it's a little easier to be sad for the earth. Two years ago when I was teaching here, my father became very ill. He had a bad heart attack. And they thought that he would die gave him 10% chance of surviving the operation. I was very, very sad. I flew down from the retreat to Philadelphia to be with him. And while I was waiting for the plane, I was here at a few hours before I left, I had uh, Caroline, my baby, with me. She'd just been born. She was about six or eight weeks old. And I was feeling very, very sad, but just waiting to go and see my father. And then I picked her up and I started to do walking meditation. I was just holding her and walking back and forth. And I started to talk to her and I talked to her about her grandfather who who had never seen her. And I said, you know, your grandfather's very sick and he might die and you may never get to see him and he won't get to see you. And I got very, very sad and I started to weep. And as I started to cry, I realized that 
she didn't know grandfather from Adam. I mean, she's just a little six-week, eight-week-old baby. But it, I couldn't cry for myself, but I could cry for someone else, for her. It takes a lot of courage to heal the heart, to touch that place with kindness. And Jack Engler, who is a friend and another Vipassana teacher here, is a psychologist at Harvard the rest of the time. He did his doctoral thesis on meditation and how it worked from a psychological perspective. And what he saw was that the whole of spiritual practice was really a process of grieving, of realizing that there's nothing we can hold on to externally. We have it and we get to use it and enjoy it, friends and people and home and car and things. But when you really get into the spiritual life, you see that that's quite temporary. And there's a process of release of that and letting go and acknowledgement that even the body is not ours to possess or keep. And then there's an even deeper letting go, which is the letting go inside of who we think we are and where we're going and the whole sense of self. So there's a kind of opening of the heart in meditation that is also healing. When Oscar Wilde was put into prison at the turn of the century for being a homosexual, he wrote a letter back from the prison saying that the trouble with prisons is not that they break hearts, dash. Hearts are meant to be broken, but like their own walls, turn the walls of the heart to stone. And if you've ever been in a prison, you can see that. It hardens people rather than heals them. But that's an amazing thing to say, that hearts are meant to be broken. Because if the heart is to open, it's like opening the door. You get whatever's out there. The weather is sunny or it's rainy or it's cold or foggy or beautiful spring days. And if we're to open in, in the deepest part of ourselves, we have to take what Zorba called the whole catastrophe, you know, the light and dark, all of it. And there's really deep stuff to be felt and a healing. And so one is asked, in a way, what love and what energy will it take to heal our hearts? What do we have to accept or open to? Can you feel as you sit? The, it's physical as well as, as well as mental and emotional. Can you feel the places, the barriers, the places where it's closed? And can you breathe and be aware and just touch that with kindness? You can't force a heart open. It doesn't work that way. It's like forcing a flower that's not ready to bloom, tugging on its petals. It doesn't work. But you can, you can water it and nourish it and shine the sunshine of awareness on it. And gradually it opens, little by little. It tests to see if it's warm enough, you know, if there's enough sunshine. So much of the practice has to do with self-acceptance, the, the healing of accepting this particular physical body, you know, with its ears that stick out and its whatever it has about it. And just saying, yeah, all right, you know, I'll take this one for this trip, this ride. Because <laughs> you got it. You might as well accept it, right? No, I want one that looks like that. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. 
And the same with the personality, quite honestly, as you, you'll see. I've had the chance to meet many great meditation masters, people who are reputed to be highly enlightened, and they all have personalities like we do. And if anything, they get quirkier as they get older. <laughs> you, know, you get issued a body, and you get issued a personality. You more or less have to come to terms with it. You won't have some different, you know, you want to make a better personality, a total personality transplant or something like that. It's much more learning to see and accept what is here. And by accept, I don't mean to get lost in it all the time, but to accept the body and to accept the, the temperament. In the Buddhist psychology, the different temperaments are described as greed or hatred or deluded based on the, the kinds of energies bef before one is awakened that operate. Uh, the greedy person, that type of personality comes in a room and they see what they like about it, what they want and what's good. And the person with a temperament that's structured around the quality of aversion comes in and sees what's wrong with it. This is wrong and that's wrong. That's sort of their take on the world. The deluded temperament walks in the room and doesn't know what to do. You know, how can I? I'm not sure one is better than another. It's just personality. Where are we close to ourselves, to our bodies? What don't we open to and accept? In our feelings, in our hearts. Who is our inner tyrant? Now, who makes inner famine in our lives? How does the famine happen in ourselves? What part of us makes war inside? What place do we have yet to forgive in ourselves, in others? What do we have to offer the earth from ourselves as healing? From what we see and smell and hear and taste, what do we have to give back? There's a tremendous power of forgiveness and acceptance to heal the heart, the body, the earth. Then there's a healing of the mind that takes place, of conflict, of tension, of so many ideals, of being at war, as Ajahn Chah says, at war with what's too big and what's too small, and what's too long and what's too short, and all the things that we'd like to be different in the world. The old Bidiwala, the old Hindu guru I studied with in Bombay, he used to just shake his head. He'd say, the trouble with you is you want what you don't have and don't want what you have. He said, why don't you just reverse it? and want what you have and not want what you don't have. It would be so easy. What ideals do we hold on to that cause our suffering? What images, what fears do we hold on to that cause our suffering that we don't need to? What confusion? Because we can see those and learn not to be so caught in them. There's a beautiful healing of the mind. 
And it comes as we begin to see its nature. We sit and follow the breath and feel the body sensations and it opens. And then the mind starts to think. And do you ask it to think? Do you tell it what to think about? Mostly not. It just does it, right? The radio is stuck on, as I said the other night. I was sitting in the monastery as a monk. And I hadn't been in this country for five years. I was in a long, year-long retreat like this one in a room by myself. And partway through it, I was sitting very peacefully, and my body had kind of opened up, and there was this exquisite sense of the breath as if it came from outside, like a breeze, just through the body. Really wonderful. Lots of light, and thoughts just came and went by themselves. Great sense of peace and equanimity. Took a lot of months to get there, mind you, but anyway. And I was just sitting there, and all of a sudden, on the screen comes all these bubbles, like white bubbles, seeing, seeing, right? And then I see something around it, like a frame of some kind, and I look a little closer. And then the audio portion came on, and it went, use Ajax, bum bum, the phone, you know. And I realized in that moment that it's all in there, every bit of it. And it has no pride. It will do anything. It will think anything. It will picture anything. And the Bodhisattva of compassion is there to be found. The Mother Teresa and the you know, tender heart healing the, the sick. And uh, warriors are in there, and Hitler is in there, and Idi Amen, and, and everything you could imagine is there, because that's the nature of mind. That's what minds are. And we can cleanse it and purify it and train it a bit so it's a bit more stable and not so wild, and so it doesn't get so caught up in these things. But basically, minds just do that. They just think. You can't say, don't think. I mean, that's like telling a body not to live or something. It's just what it does. Minds think, hearts feel, eyes see. And what we need to learn is how to relate to it. The minds think they're separate, and we get really caught up and say, yeah, we're going to do this and become that. And they create this whole sense of I and other, and importance and striving and all that. It's not to get rid of all those things, but somehow to touch them from a different place with our awareness and our kindness. Again, the old Bidiwala said that the mind creates the abyss and the heart crosses it. That the mind creates our sense of I and other and separation. And it's not through thought, but through some deeper awareness and listening that it becomes healed. You'll see your mind do everything. And it's an amazing and wonderful realization to come to that it's okay, that it's just a play of stuff. Good, bad, light, dark, up and down. And when one can do that through attention and listening, you come to a place of serenity and of fundamental goodness, of strength, of love, of, of unity, of completion. Einstein put it this way. He said, a human being is part of the whole called by us universe, a part limited in time and space. 
we experience ourselves, our thoughts and feelings, as something separate from the rest, a kind of optical delusion of our consciousness. This delusion is a prison for us, restricting us to our personal desires and to affection for a few people nearest to us. Our task must be to free ourselves from this prison by widening our circle of understanding and compassion to embrace all living creatures and the whole of nature in its beauty. As we sit and we see all that stuff happen, because it does, there's some other place that we can come to relate from, a place of mindfulness, of openness, of what's called our Buddha nature that sees all of those things like that statue that sits there and doesn't reject a single thing, just says, yes, this too and this too, without struggling or fighting. This is why we practice, to open in that way. Because when you touch even the, the, the greatest grief and sorrow and suffering and struggle, if you find that place in yourself, you discover that the wisdom and the strength of the heart is greater than that yet, still. It's like going to visit Mother Teresa in Calcutta, and her dying center is in the corner of the big Kali temple, which is Kali is the goddess of death and destruction in a very poor area of Calcutta. It's quite a scene, and you think, well, I'll go in, and it'll be really heavy with all these people dying. And it's not, actually. You go in, and it's the cleanest place for, for miles around. It's swept and washed clean, and people are lying there who are sick. But there's a lot of light and a beautiful spirit, and the nuns and the people who work there are laughing and, and really very happy. And there's a big saying on the wall, at least there was one time I was there, from Mother, Mother Says, kind of these sayings, said that if we just feed these people, will be no more than social workers or another program of the government. And what our task is to bring the joy of our hearts, the joy of our love for God, and to share that with each person who comes through the door. And it was a, be it was a beautiful place, and it was amazing that in all of that difficulty, the light was so much brighter than the suffering. That's kind of the bottom line of it all. It's pretty amazing. So there's the healing of the body and the healing of the earth as we listen to it, the opening. There's the healing of the heart, of our grief, of our sorrow, of the things that we hold, that we finally let ourselves feel and touch and open to and release. There's the healing of the mind of ideals and conflict and wanting and liking and disliking. Not because you get rid of it, but you just say, oh, look at it, it's doing its thing again. And the most central to the awakening of the Buddha, the deepest of all, is the healing of emptiness. The Buddha said that the five processes which make up the self the body and the feelings and the memory and perceptions and all of our volitions and desires and the knowing of it, our consciousness, are empty. What an amazing thing to say, that they're empty. What does that mean, that they're empty? 
means something very important if we can discover it in ourselves, that there is nothing that separates us one from another. There's no I or me that's unchanging to protect or guard or hold. And as we deepen in the process of meditation and the body opens and the heart opens, when we stay with the breath a bit more and we get more concentrated, at first things take 15 notes to go away, maybe, or 12 or 20 or whatever. Or we get lost in our thoughts for five minutes or 10 minutes. And we practice and we're more continuous in, out, rising, falling, thinking, thinking, feeling sad, feeling happy, happy, passes away, rising, falling again. We start to look more and more closely. All of a sudden, things just take one or two notes, and you see that they go away. Or we're so present that instead of getting lost for five minutes in a thought, it's just 10 seconds. And then we realize, oh, we've been thinking. There is just another thought. And when you get really still, you can be so attentive that you feel the thought when it first arises. Or even before, there's a kind of a little sensation, the thought's just about to burp, it's kind of come out of its little (laughs) cave. You can feel that when you're really, when the samadhi gets strong. And you get to a place, if you stay with it, where the whole solidity of body and mind becomes just a moment's arising of thought and a sensation, and the body doesn't feel solid at all, it's just little tinglings that are coming and going, and the mind has a thought or a feeling or perception. And the whole sense of I and other breaks down. It's as if the power of mindfulness becomes like a microscope to dissolve the whole solidity of body and mind. And we see that we're not separate and not graspable. It's an extraordinary level of understanding, and it affects how you live after that. You can't see that and, and be, take it quite as seriously. And this is the deepest of all the healings. It's the healing of this emptiness of self or the interconnectedness of all beings. The third Zen patriarch said the non-dual, non-duality, is one with the trusting mind, with the mind that can let go and let it all be, then the oneness of things shows itself. We had an interview some months ago with the Vietnamese Zen master Thich Nhat Hanh, very beautiful teacher. <clears throat> and one of the things that we asked him in the interview, someone asked, was, is there such a thing as group karma? That is, why did the Vietnamese War happen in Vietnam? Did the whole country of Vietnam, as people do some terrible thing in the past, to have so much horror and bombs and things rained upon them? And he listened to the question, and he sat very still for a while so that everyone got still and listened when he responded. And shook his head, and he said, the Vietnamese War didn't happen to the Vietnamese. It happened to everyone. It happened to everyone in this room. It touched every person on this earth. And he said, there's no such thing as something happening to one person. And you could feel it in that moment. It was an amazing moment because it was true. The truth is that we're not separate. To touch the non-dual, says the third Zen patriarch, 
to come to that realization is to be without anxiety about non-perfection. It's not perfect. Never was, never will be. You can't make it perfect. You can't make a perfect body. I mean, God knows one tries perhaps at certain times. You know, you jog it and you bathe it and you brush it and you do it. It's never perfect. Try and make a perfect mind. To be without anxiety about non-perfection. It's an amazing line. That is to receive what is here and see it and see that all of it arises each day out of nothing and disappears. We've done a lot of loving-kindness meditation here and it feels important as a part of the practice to keep the spirit of the heart open and of healing. But its purpose is not to create some state of feeling a lot of love, that you love everything, kind of that being in love with stuff. That's okay, but it's temporary. You'll find that state doesn't last any more than the heart stays open all the time. It has its seasons. It opens and closes like any flower. There's something more important, which is not a clinging to some state of love, but a secret that you discover as you practice. And that is that awareness or mindfulness and true love are the same thing. That we really do the loving kindness as a way to to bring a, a tenderness, a softness, so we can open to what's true. And in that opening to the up and down and to the breath and the sensations and the pain and the heat and the beautiful things and the rapture and the calm and the frustration, in that opening, that is love itself. Healing means to enter into anything, to each moment, to each thing, as it is fully. That itself is healing. Every moment that we're aware is a healing moment. The clouds are free only in being pushed by the wind, and the rain is free only in its falling. If you love the law, the law of the Dharma, if you enter into its singing, this is a poem by Wendell Berry, it's not to fight against one's destiny or the law of impermanence, but it's to willingly accept what is true. And so as we sit, We heal the body, and we open our senses to heal the earth. The jungles, the forests, the children, the animals, the people who are poor and hungry, all of those get healed when we touch ourselves deeply enough. Even the devas, even the gods get touched. We heal our feelings and our hearts and our grief and our sorrow, which is as much a part of our birthright as our joy is. But that sorrow is not enough, Thich Nhat Hanh said, and he's seen as much suffering as anyone I've ever met. He said, suffering isn't enough if you just see that. And so when he went to San Francisco Zen Center, where I was practicing with him, he said, you guys, you get up too early, for one thing. You should get up a little later, and your practice is too grim. He said, I have a practice for you for this week. Just two instructions for the whole week. One is breathe, and the second is smile. For this week, just smile and breathe. That was all. And everyone went, oh, oh, oh. 
You know the Tibetan chant, Om Mani Padmi Hung, Om, which is the universal sound, Mani Padmi Hung, the jewel is in the lotus. What it means is the mind and the heart come together. The jewel is the mind and the lotus is the heart. The head and heart are not apart. And that's the healing of bringing it all together in each moment. To see it, to receive it with balance, to open to it. Practice is hard work, and you didn't come here for a picnic. I see you've discovered that by now. And that's all right. I want to encourage people to do it fully, to work hard, to, to give yourselves to this process, this year, this new year. But you can do it with real tenderness. You can do it with your heart open to touch the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. Because the real work isn't to gain some state that you get to, but to see and to feel and to open to what is here in each moment. (laughs) And there is no difficulty and no sorrow and no barrier and no grief and no pain that's too great for the human heart and too far for our awareness to touch. The power of awareness and the power of love intrinsically can hold and open to and overcome anything. There's no difficulty that enough love can't overcome. There's no distance that enough love can't cross. There's no sorrow that enough love can't heal. And so we do some very deep work together. This is from Don Juan again about the shaman Don Gennaro, his friend and sidekick. He said, Gennaro's love is the world. He was just now embracing this enormous earth. But since he's so little, all he can do is swim on it. But the earth knows that Gennaro loves it and bestows on him its care. And that's why Gennaro's life is filled to the brim and his state, wherever he'll be, will be plentiful. (coughs) Only if one loves this earth, this life, with unbending passion, can one release one's sadness. A warrior is always joyful, spiritual warrior, because their love is unalterable and their beloved, the earth, embraces them and bestows upon them inconceivable gifts. Only the love of this splendorous life can give freedom to a warrior's spirit. And this freedom is joy, efficiency, and abandon in the face of any odds. That's the last lesson. It's always left for the very last moment, for the moment of ultimate solitude when a person faces their death and aloneness. Only then does it make sense. I was in the Cambodian refugee camps one year for a short time was going to be helping the medical teams, but I got sick myself. And when I was well enough to go, 
I ended up helping a beautiful monk that a few of you know, Mahagosananda, very sweet guy, who was one of the Cambodian monks to survive, one of the few. And he built a temple of bamboo in this camp that had the most, the poorest and the most difficult of the Khmer Rouge communist refugees. And he started having services. There were 50,000 people in this piece of parched earth with little tiny huts that they lived in. And he played this temple gong that was given to him, and people came who hadn't heard the Buddhist chant in eight or ten years and had seen their villages destroyed and their families killed and their temples destroyed. And he gave the simplest Dharma talks. He would get up and first he would just chant in a very sweet voice and people would begin to weep because it was so beautiful to see it again. And the first talk he gave, he read from the Dhammapada, the words of the Buddha, in the simplest verses. And he started with a verse that said, Hatred never ceases by hatred. Only by love is hatred appeased. This is an ancient and eternal and universal truth. And then he chanted that. He just repeated it a few times. And it was just amazing. Here were 10,000 people who came to this little bamboo temple and sat to listen to that. People who'd been involved in a great deal of suffering. And their faces just... It was, it was really an amazing moment to watch. Their faces were, were just filled with delight and healing because even those four lines had a power to heal that suffering of their lives. So it's powerful what we do. Any questions, please? Watch things arise and pass away. And one thing that I noticed that arose and passed away was awareness. That's mm. And that's very frightening to me because mm-hmm. then I go, well, then what's the point? And I would just like you to talk about that. Question is about impermanence. She'd been practicing, and the teacher she worked with said to particularly notice the arising and passing, as we, as we do here, of different phenomena. The breath arises and passes, and sights come and go, and feelings and thoughts. But then she noticed that awareness itself comes and goes. And that was kind of disturbing. I imagine you've all noticed that, actually. There are certain hours when it's real clear, right? I said, well, then what, what, is the, what are we doing if that's not permanent? Although it's not permanent, it's, the, the image that's used is it's a raft. It's a vehicle for us to discover what is true. And if awareness were permanent, you could say, fine, that's where I'll take my stand and this is me. But it's not. There's nothing you can take a stand on. So in fact, to see that awareness itself changes is part of the learning that it has to give you. Each thing is teaching us if we can see, if we can listen. And what you come to then is what Alan Watts called the wisdom of insecurity. You don't get security. This is not a security trip. If you want that, you get life insurance or something. (laughs) But you know why it's just so expensive, don't you? Because it's trying to insure against something that's inevitable, which is change. 
This is, this is the place that you get next life insurance. <laughs> and it's, it's very fine that you see impermanence in, in awareness as well, because what it leads you to see is that there's really no place to take a stand. Given that that's true, then you say, how does practice help additionally to that? You notice that it's all conditioned, that Ajax comes up because I watched so many hours of TV as a kid or whatever it was, and that what we do begins to create that which will arise. So as we practice awareness or as we cultivate compassion or as we fulfill the perfections that the Buddha fulfilled of patience, of loving-kindness, of, of endurance or effort, of, uh, of caring for one another, gradually those become the elements which play most fr frequently through our hearts and through our minds. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.